You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and you'll want to listen on to find out what he has to say about the tools you can use to pick the top performing suburbs. But in Melbourne, I got 20 out of 20. In Sydney, I got 20 out of 20. And the theme there was, look for undervalued suburbs close to the city or the sea. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of the property professor, Peter Koulazos. Peter holds a teaching degree, a graduate diploma in property, master's of business in property, and a master of urban and regional planning. He's been teaching real estate and investment for over 20 years and is currently the coordinator of the property and share investment courses at TAFE South Australia. And he also teaches in the property degree at the University of South Australia, probably why they call you the professor, right? Correct. He also personally invests in property and currently holds several. Peter has the ability to combine the theory of property investment with the practical aspects so as to teach people how to make money for themselves, whether they be buying, selling, renting, renovating or developing property. He researches property markets around the nation looking for the best suburbs to invest in each capital city, which will be interesting to find out what his opinions are on those. He has published two books, The Property Professor's Top Australian Suburbs and more recently Property versus Shares. That I haven't read and I must. He is also a contributor to numerous newspapers, magazines, websites, and is sought after by TV and radio for his research and comments on the property market, and we're seeking him out today. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, Veronica. Thank you, Peter. Good to see you again. Lovely Uh, to see you too, Chris. uh, Been a long time. How do you know know each other again? I used to work at a company, and Peter was, I guess, aligned with that company and run property education courses for clients of the company, and there would be a paying course that they would attend for and then go to a weekend and Peter would run it and very early on I was a guest and then I was presenting there as well with Peter and you know we did even a course with the Newcastle Jets together yeah, which we, was pretty cool. Yeah, so, I remember uh, that. A lot of my initial learnings in the property market was um, down to Peter so I, I thank you for that. Pleasure. And there's a lot of concern I guess at the moment because we've had this six years of boom and when things are booming everything's going up and everyone's happy and the banks are happy. But now the media has done a flip and now it's talking about bloom. And so just recently we had the 60 Minutes report and there's lots of negative everywhere you look. What's your view on what's happening out there in the property market more generally? So Sydney has had it good in the last six years. Melbourne's had it good for the last five, but there are plenty of other places where it's their time to shine. So if you're looking to invest for the next five to 10 years, and this is generally speaking, because I'm sure some pockets are going to do better than others, right? Sydney and Melbourne probably wouldn't be the places that I would be investing in because they've already had their good time, but I'd be looking at areas that haven't, and my two picks would be Adelaide or Brisbane because for the last 10 years, they haven't done much, and there will be a, a time when there is so much underlying demand, there'll be a tipping point, 
where property prices will march on. It's very hard in this current climate with investors finding it very difficult to borrow money, but it won't be like this forever uh, once the Royal Commission is over and done with and and some uh, long-term initiatives are, are implemented by the banks, then I'm, I'm sure it'll be much easier for investors and owner-occupiers to borrow money. More demand comes in, prices go up. We've had all the, the tailwinds for the property market over the last five years, you know, relaxed lending policy, interest only, low interest rates, migration, etc. Why do you think places like Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, Darwin, even though we've had all these tailwinds, they haven't boomed, but Sydney and Melbourne have. Okay. So, I mean, the interest rates are the same for everyone around the country. Yeah. All right. And the amount of deposit you have to come up with is the same around the country. The key is- You mean percentage-wise. Percentage-wise, yeah. <laughs> uh, The key is the consumer and business confidence within that state. Yeah. So, but like, I've been coming to Sydney for 10 to 15 years to, to teach and- and whatever. And I remember for those first few years, everyone complained that the government was doing nothing. It was too hard to develop property and nobody was developing, mm-hmm. right? But I reckon there was a change of government and, and things almost flipped. So uh, government was spending money, in particular state government. Mm-hmm. That provides jobs, which is one of the, the biggest keys in the health of an economy and the property market, and confidence turned around. Same in Melbourne. Melbourne's also benefiting from great migration, not only interstate migration, but overseas migration. So there is great demand. But these things go in cycles. They ebb and flow. So, And the sort of growth that Sydney and Melbourne have had for the last five to six years is unsustainable. You cannot continue to go like that. And a, a property cycle, as I'm sure both of you know, it's not even. You know, the, the upswing is, doesn't is not the same length of time as the, the downswing. Generally, not much happens in the property market. Then there's a spike for two to three years. Mm-hmm. And then not much happens for another seven or eight years. And then there's another spike. This is just a natural part of the property cycle. It's an interesting uh, illustration there. I often talk about that being the Sydney and Melbourne um, growth curve. That's what it looks like. Not necessarily the whole of Sydney or Melbourne. So no, it's, it's that's sort right. of the inner areas, obviously, is a lot stronger, and that's more likely what it's going to look at because there's certain other areas outside, certainly Brisbane, lots, of, and, and it comes down to not just the suburb or the area within the city, but also the, the property type. And certainly there's been lots of stats about, you know, apartment prices in Brisbane, for instance. So they don't level off for a period of time in a lot of areas, do they? They actually do fall. That's um, right. And so I think that that's, there's very different patterns. So I guess what insights can you give us around that and what what causes that? All right. So basically the apartment market is a different beast. So apartment markets suffer for a number of reasons. Number one, it's demand and supply, right? It is very easy to get into an oversupply situation with apartments because you don't build one at a time like you do houses. You build hundreds at a time. So it doesn't take too many apartment blocks before you are in an oversupply situation. And even though, you know, the time you thought about building the apartments, the times were good, because it takes such a long time to build apartments, by the time they're ready to sell, times may not be so good. Like Whereas, now. That's right. <laughs> Whereas houses don't take as long to sell. And mm. the other issue behind apartments is that because they have a limited land component and it's the land component that appreciates in value whereas the building depreciates in value. What people have bought, if they buy an apartment, let's say they buy 
a brand new apartment, and let's say it's six hundred thousand. Right, the land component might be one hundred and fifty thousand. The building component, because it costs a lot to build high-rise uh, dwellings, would be let's say three hundred and fifty thousand. So three hundred fifty plus one fifty is five hundred, but they're paying six hundred. That other hundred thousand is the developer's profit. All right. So now they now bought something for six hundred thousand. As time goes on, their one hundred and fifty thousand of their six hundred is increasing in value. Their three hundred and fifty thousand of their six hundred is decreasing in value, and the other hundred has disappeared. So you try and sell that next year, you're not going to get six hundred because it's like a brand new car. You're not going to sell your brand new car for the same price or more than you bought it for, unless you keep it for 40 years and it turns into a vintage car. (laughs) That's a different story. (laughs) And that was my next question. What about older established apartments? Australians love older property. You Mm. know, we love our, in South Australia, our cottages, our bungalows, our villas. In New South Wales, you've got your Californian bungalows, Art Deco, Federation. In Melbourne, you've got uh, Edwardian, Victorian, uh, Federation style. Sorry? Queen Anne. Yeah, Queen Anne Villas. Mm. Yeah, in Queensland, we have the Queenslander. Australians love old property. So for me, anything built before World War II is a great property to buy. If you can't afford those sorts of properties, then the older the better because the building has depreciated. Mm. But after World War II, it gets to a time where the building starts to add value back to the property because of demand and supply. They're not making any more original Californian bungalows, Queen Anne villas, uh, or those sorts of properties. That's very true. And the more that get demolished in certain councils Mm. where they're quite happy to to, uh, replace them with new shiny buildings, then obviously that uh, supply diminishes. That's from shrinking supply, Yeah, um, Yeah. which is pretty amazing. That's the two things you'd want to to have any Mm. investment is growing demand every year, so population growth, income growth. But then if you can cap supply and not build any more Mm. of it and it's highly desirable and it's actually knocking them down. Mm. We've done probably 40-odd episodes now and we haven't actually gone into a lot of detail around the land component and that's what drives Mm. prices the most. And I think it's a big mistake that people make is, is that they don't understand that that's really what goes up. The building is really just like a car. It's getting older every year. and Unless, unless it's, it's a vintage. Unless it's a vintage, <laughs> it's not going to be going up in value. And, I mean, you said 150 grand of that was your land. That would be an amazing result for a Yeah, a it would be. I, I was just trying to do my maths because I don't have pencil and paper in front of <laughs> me, so I was looking for easy numbers. Yeah, but, but would, the land component would be a, a relatively small more. component compared mm. to the whole Purchase price. It might only be ten percent. That's right. You know, yeah. so it's might of the six hundred thousand apartment. It might only be sixty grand worth of land. Well, it depends where it is, isn't it? Yeah. Because obviously, land is more valuable the closer it is to, and, and generally speaking, the CBD or the lifestyle where everyone wants to be. So, the further out you go, a there's more supply of land, but also the distance to all the amenities and work and lifestyle and transport and all those sort of things that add value to the land or that are part of the land's value. I guess it's proximity to all those things. When you got that and you got endless supply, then of course the land value is A, not going to be huge, but B, not going to climb that much either, is it? That's right. So the important thing to remember, it's not necessarily the size of the land because, you know, here we are in Waterloo, you know, 200 square metre block of land here in Waterloo would be worth a lot more than a (laughs) 2,000 square metre block of land, maybe 50 k's out of uh, Sydney CBD. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I read something just last week and it was uh, on a forum and someone was asking for advice on a forum. Probably not the greatest place to ask for advice. <laughs> um, but, you know, and the, the question was, should I sell this property, you know? And one of the quick comments back was, oh, well, don't sell it. You know, you're not meant to, you're meant to buy and hold and never sell was mm. one of them. And then the next one was, oh, don't sell. It's got land. They're not making any more of it. And the truth to that is they are making more land, aren't they? You they know? are. And they're making a lot of it. Oh, you know, I just read a, another article. I think it was one of your posts on LinkedIn, Chris, about yet more farmland being given away mm. to uh, to house developments. And and what's so awful about that is that we have to eat as well. We do need to retain our food bowls. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Sorry and to interrupt there. <laughs> and so I guess places like, um, you know, you mentioned that Adelaide's a good place and Brisbane and they haven't, the economy isn't really, you said business confidence can, needs to kind of kick it off. But also you need people, you need to create that demand. How is that going to play out in Adelaide where we haven't got strong population growth potentially and we're not going to create that kind of pressure cooker effect without population growth? How's Adelaide going to fire That's up? That's a very good question, Chris. So we're going to get into controversy here is what we're going to do? No. That's, that's, that's good. It is with it. Because I, <laughs> population growth is not necessarily a good indicator of property price growth. Let me give you an example, Ooh, all right? Here yes. we go. It's an elephant, an That's elephant right. in the room. Right. So let's say a suburb has 10,000 people, right? And next year it has 11,000 people because there's lots of newborn babies, right? Well, that doesn't do much for for pressure on property because they're going to stay in one of those in a, in one of the bedrooms in one of the existing houses. They don't take up much space. Yeah, or if we had, and they've got no money. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if ten, th- if we had ten thousand people, and then we had eleven thousand people, and all these people are age seventy or more because they've just built retirement villages in the suburb, that does nothing for property prices mm-hmm. either. It's not necessarily the number of people that come in; it's their borrowing capacity. For example, yep. in Adelaide, all right, we don't have a lot of people coming in. All right. Certainly compared to Sydney and Melbourne. But what we do have coming in now is due to the new defence industry and the biomedical precinct, the people that are coming in have money. Mm. So, you know, with all due respect to any, say, abattoir workers that might be listening into this podcast, if all the abattoirs of Australia were relocated to Adelaide and we had lots of abattoir workers in Adelaide, that's not going to do a lot for property prices in general because they can't afford to buy too much. Sorry, abattoir workers. Oh, you know what will happen though. All the investors will go, quick, quick, got to buy there because these people will need to rent. <laughs> then right. that will push prices up. <laughs> but if we have, if I look at the other extreme, if we only have high-end medical scientists, defence people and engineers come in, then that's certainly going to do a lot for property prices because mm-hmm. they have the money to, to push prices up. So it's not necessarily population growth, but it is household formation rate. Mm. It is how quickly are new households being formed. So with the extra kid in the household, there's no extra households. But if we had a 1,000 extra people and they were all university students, Mm. then we do have extra households. Then there is demand for property and rents will go up. So you're saying as the kids get to their late 20s and they – settle down and they want to own a home, even though the population is still the same, you've now got another home buyer. That's right. You have to look at the the breakdown of age groups. That is critical. Look, I'm I'm not saying that Adelaide is going to see, at or Brisbane, are going to see, you know, growth of 20% or more next year or the year after. 
The advantage that Brisbane has is, as has happened in other property cycles, and I'm sure it's going to happen in this one, people from New South Wales have had very good growth in their property prices. They look up to Queensland, they can see, I can buy virtually exactly the same house that I have here and still be left with several hundred thousand dollars in my pocket after I sell it. Mm -hmm. Why don't we migrate to, in particular, Brisbane or southeast Queensland and retire or semi-retire? And that is already happening now. So I think... Brisbane more so is a no-brainer. The problem I have with southeast Queensland, which is the section between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, like you were mentioning, Veronica, there's almost an endless supply of land. So if they're just going to be building new houses in new estates for these people, that's not going to help existing property prices much. But if they go into, say, Brisbane, suburbia, where there is limited supply, basically you have to knock one down to build another one or build another two, that's where the opportunities lie. How close? When you say inner rings of Brisbane... How many kilometres are you talking generally? Okay, so it would be within 10Ks. Yeah. So if I was talking in a city in Sydney, it's within 15Ks. In a city in Adelaide, is within 5Ks. <laughs> so it all depends on the size of the city. And ideally, the closer, the better? Yep. Yeah. So, so I, I really like suburbs like Hurston, Pelvin Grove, but my favourite is Woolloongabba because the other kicker that Woolloongabba has, it's going through gentrification. So it's a place where nobody wanted to live 20, 30 years ago because it was full of factories and warehouses and industry, but now a lot of those factories are moving out and they're either being converted to warehouse living or knocked down and being converted to residential. We'll talk about gentrification in a minute, but I want to go Excellent. back Excellent. One of my favourite topics. I know it is. <laughs> um, want to go back to your comments there about you know Brisbane and Adelaide being the next ones, and you said around five to ten years, Okay. In all things being equal, okay, so they've had well, periods of stagnation or even a bit of negative growth, even with houses in Brisbane. When they have an upcycle, is their upcycle over a five, 10 year period going to be the, the same magnitude as an upcycle in Sydney or Melbourne over no. a same similar t- period of time? No, I mean, you know, we're talking about Sydney's great property boom that they've just had, mm. but that powers into insignificance back in the late 80s when I think it was Sydney in 19. 19- 88 and 1989, in each of those years, property prices went up by over 30% mm. in each year. Yep. So over mm. two years, property prices went up by well over 60%. Mm. Yeah. But places like Adelaide and Brisbane uh, don't have that. Perth did, but that was due to the, in the main, due to the mining, mining boom. Yeah. But you won't see that in um, in. Yeah, and that's a really important distinction because a lot of researchers and commentators talk about, well, they're the next areas to go up, so that's where you should be investing. And, and absolutely, if you want to see a, more of an accelerated growth in that five or ten year period, but if it really is for the long term, you know, so if you're thinking of turning it over in that period of time, and that's good to look at those areas with that sort of more shorter term um, growth expectation. But if you are looking for the long term, you have to remember, people have to remember that that long term growth of areas outside of that 10K or 15K radius of Sydney and 10K radius of Melbourne basically do not perform long-term and cannot perform. They don't have the same drivers and underlying fundamentals. Another thing, uh, just last Saturday I was just on Sky News, um, did a little bit of guest co-hosting that I do every now and then and I get to comment on the auctions that are, that are showed from around the country and there was an auction in Kelvin Grove. And uh, it was interesting because it was a Queenslander that hadn't been touched since it was last bought 15 years earlier and it was on a big block and others of a similar size have been subdivided or they put a battle axe in, okay? And so watching the auction, and it was a, it was a competitive auction. It, it went for over half an hour. It was 
drawn out. There mm-hmm. was agony over those last bids and all that sort of stuff. It's in any anyone's language that was a really good hot auction. And 2003, it sold for 620000 and it sold this time around for I think it was a million and I'm trying to remember the numbers, but it was a million and oh, 50 or 60 or something like that. I worked it at the time. It was a 75% growth over that 15-year period. Now, I know because I was selling real estate in Balmain in 2003, I know what you could have bought in Balmain in Sydney, which is also 3Ks mm-hmm. from the city, for 620000 back in 2003, and I know they would have tripled some maybe even more without any investment in terms of renovation. And I think that sort of gives that illustration. I know we've had this whopping great boom, but that's 15 years. That's that's an extra 10 on top of the five-year boom that we had. And there is that sort of growth. And I think people do have to remember that, that if they are in for the long term, they have to sort of stop thinking, okay, what's next to go? They yeah. have to actually buy the quality asset with that long term in mind. And Balmain's kicker was the gentrification, mm. which was just finishing. Back to but, your favourite topic. Yeah. And <laughs> We call this the elephant in the room because people discover the undiscovered. Is that is yeah? What we do here? We'll talk about the things that no one talks about. All right, I'll tell you something. I, I don't think I've told many people this. No. Ooh. So, because I've done so, so my stuff when I talk is generally based on research. Mm. Right. Over the last thirty years, so I'm talking before I said where you should invest for the next five to ten. Yep. But when we look over the last thirty years, the best capital cities for capital growth are the biggest capital cities, Mm. Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and then we go down the list. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, that I can state. Why? Who knows? Is bigger better? Who knows? But if if you're looking for the very long term, and I don't know how many investors are planning to hold on to property for 30 years, then you are better off investing in the larger capital cities. Yeah. But the reality is most investors won't hold a particular property for that period of time. Most owner-occupiers won't either. So because I, I can easily tell that I'm the oldest person in the room, all right? So when I was- I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a lot of my life, property life, I've, it's been hammered into me. It's time in the market, right? But now as I'm getting a little bit older and wiser- I can see timing mm. the market. Mm. Depending on where you buy, absolutely, that's right. yeah. Now, hindsight's a wonderful thing, mm. all right? But one thing that we know is property, like lots of things in the economy, goes in cycles. So Sydney and Melbourne have peaked out, so you need to look for other places for the next five to ten years, which would be a reasonable period of time for an investor to hold a property. Like Veronica was just saying, that that place in Queensland grew hugely. I mean, you do have to hold it for a period of time because it's not like the share market where you can, you know, buy today and sell tomorrow and make a fortune. Mm. Yeah. Um, you do have to hold it for some time, but if you're looking at timing the market because you've got a five to ten year time frame, yep. I'd be looking not just at the capital city but at the suburb, the street, as you mentioned, Veronica, the type of property is very important. There are a number of factors to consider, but certainly – the, the city that you buy in has a very big influence on how well your property's going to do. You know, yeah. I mean, I guess the thing that I, in my bet on why Sydney and Melbourne have, you know, had the best growth is really comes down to demand and supply, which is what investing in property is. <laughs> and really in those two cities, you've got a pressure cooker effect happening because there's only so many houses in this inner ring. And the more people that move to the city means it gets busier, the roads get clogged. 
and then traveling around the city becomes more difficult. And then you start prioritizing time and saying, well, if I want to live closer to the city and I will take a million dollar mortgage out as a cost to do so, because it saves me an hour or hour a day getting to and from work. And the problems with somewhere like Adelaide and Brisbane and things like that, because these populations are much smaller, getting around the city is much easier. And it's not until that time getting in that distance, you know, really becomes a problem where people start saying, well, I really want to live in these suburbs. And that, that kind of gentrification kind of keeps going out. So I guess the thing that, you know, will drive the returns long-term, if Sydney's population keeps going up and Melbourne's population keeps going up and there's only so many houses and there's shrinking supply, then you, the, the forces are still there. So you're still going to get that same demand and supply. I guess the, the timing the market in and out, the biggest problem with that is that I find, because what I try to hammer home with clients is quality over quantity. So, Correct. you know, don't go and try to build a portfolio of 10 properties. Just get yourself two, maybe three amazing ones and then never sell. And now that's a pretty scary thing for a 30 or 40 year old to think through. <laughs> You're going to hold this for 40 session years. Session forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love and, it. <laughs> you know, if, the reason why you can do that though, I believe, is that if you buy on a good street, a nice frontage in a street where they're unlikely to do any development because they're all other nice frontages and heritage or it's a, got trees, they're not going to knock them down. You come back to that suburb in 30 years time. If you do enough research, that suburb should be exactly the same. The CBD is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. The beach isn't going anywhere. And so the two lifestyle and work benefits are always going to be there. So if you come back 10 years later, that should still be the same in 20 years, et cetera. And the reason I think that is, is the big thing is capital gains tax and the buy and sell costs. And so if you sell, you have to pay capital gains mm. tax. You lose that money mm. and you go back one step to go forward one step. Mm-hmm. But if you you buy and then you never pay capital gains tax to your sell, your pot just keeps growing and compounding. It's true. The thing is, though, some people want to be active investors. And so I, I love that approach and that strategy, and it's very much my own approach as well. Although I do tend to buy in those areas, those sorts of characteristics, but I do tend to buy something that can be improved. <laughs> so I get the best of both. But, you know, there are people that do want to actively invest. You know, they love property and, and to their own detriment often because of those costs and they're not accurately taking them into account. And they also have an overconfidence when it comes to their own ability to renovate and choose locations and all the rest of it. But Peter, on you know, back to your point about that fact that I think you know, it sounds like human nature comment, isn't it? That the reality is, even though it's a good idea to do exactly what you're saying, Chris, and what we all say and what we've been saying here, the fact is human beings may not. And so therefore they've got to understand what's going on in a a national sort of sense so that they can actually make more informed decisions. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, very true. So it's not just happening what's in your backyard that you need to focus on. It's, It's what's happening globally. Like, for example, the, the GFC, the global financial mm. crisis, had a huge impact on the Australian economy and in, and in many sectors on Australian property market. So you need to find out what's happening globally. How is that going to affect us nationally and in your state and in your suburb? And on that, because there's a lot of global doomsayers and there's a lot of overseas-based economists as well, basically have been predicting for many, many years that the Australian property market which doesn't actually exist either, mm-hmm. where it was full of micro markets, but anyway, um, is, you know, is 40% overvalued. And in that 60 Minutes report, they picked Martin North's worst case scenario as well and, and decided to make a story based around that. What do you think? You know, when these people come up with this stuff, I mean, where are they plucking it from and why are they saying it? Oh, because it's great headlines. So we're talking about it. Mm. Yeah. Interestingly, 
almost 10 years to the day, 60 Minutes did a very similar story with, I don't know if you remember, Associate Professor Steve Keane. Oh, yes. He's famous, a hiker. Uh, he famously <laughs> said that property values are going to drop in Sydney by 40%. Mm. Do you now, know that he's moved to the US? I thought he moved to the UK. Yeah, to the US? I think he's now gone to the US. Oh, he's also he's, claiming that he wasn't wrong, that it's just got the timing wrong. Like, uh, <laughs> well, it, I mean, I do admire him in one sense because he truly believed that and he sold his property in Sydney. Mm. To put his money poor, where his mouth yeah, But the poor bugger missed out on property prices in Sydney doubling mm. in that period of time. Mm. Yeah. I, I think generally overseas people, overseas people don't understand a number of things about the Australian property market. And I know, micro markets is very true. Mm. Number one, the property market is not an investment market. Mm. Most people that buy yeah. property buy it to live in. They're not interested in the rental return yep. or the capital growth. Does it have three bedrooms? Is it near where I want the kids to go to school? All right, let's buy it. Yeah. So decisions are based on emotion mm. rather than thinking it through. And that's fine, but when you do your analysis, you need to think about that human behaviour. 100%. We're not, we're not mm. looking at investment analysts and, you know, the numbers are, are right, so, you know, this is a good area. You need to look <laughs> at the human behaviour behind it. <laughs> Everyone that I know that's in the money market in all various, you know, yeah. areas of it, they cannot wrap their head around that. I've given up even trying to have a conversation with them. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that because it is, it's all about the human behaviour. And yeah. fundamentally what underpins a solid area is that owner-occupier appeal. It is. And this is why yeah. some areas are suffering so much, like mining towns, because they don't have that. Well, in the recent, I think I presented at that conference that I first met you, Veronica, where I looked at the suburbs that I had selected 10 years ago. But while I was having a break, I just sorted all the suburbs and towns in Australia and their price performance from greatest to lowest, and right down the bottom, there was a huge concentration of mining towns. Mm. Like some in Western Australia dropped by 70%. Jesus. In 10 years. Yeah. So the rest, even mm. even Perth, which is heavily affected by the mining bust, mm. even they went up 5% for, mm. for 10 years. Yeah. But these places went back 70%. Imagine if you had a mortgage mm. and now your the house that you own is worth much less than the mortgage that you owe yeah. on. Yep. It's just well, There's a lot of well-documented cases of yeah, that. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, and this is why people be very careful of property spruikers, yes. because people who aren't charging you for their advice are getting their money from somewhere. Oh, that is correct. And there's a lot of developers, and they're still out there offering, you know, <laughs> mortgage brokers, accountants, a whole bunch of people are getting kickbacks for helping you buy crap property that's actually going to lose you money. And, and look, only just yesterday I was talking to somebody who bought a property in their self-managed super fund, which was set up for the purposes in Townsville only six years ago, that is now wiped out the full amount that they had in their super fund that enabled them to buy it in the first place has now been completely wiped out by costs and falling values. It's a, it's, it's a terrible situation. So your book, Peter, I've read it. I um, Which one's uh, this? This is the Australia's Top Suburbs. Top suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> we used to give it out to clients. Yeah. Um, and uh, and a lot of it I love about what you do is research-based and it's all thinking about the, you know, what's desirability and the livability of suburbs. From your, you're going back 10 years after that book, were, what were the suburbs that didn't perform as you'd expect and if there was any? And have you thought about the reasons why they haven't? Because yep. I think that's a really interesting point to know because a lot of what your book's based on is, is great logic and maybe some things that you may have learned from over the yeah, last 10 look, years. A number of things were reinforced. Yeah. 
So I picked 107 suburbs. Yeah. Did I get 107 out of 107? No. My big failing was Perth in Western Australia. Now I understand why. We had the mining collapse mm-hmm. and that filtered through to Perth. Even though the mining towns may have dropped by 70, 50, 60, 70%, that also had an impact on Perth because a lot of those people weren't living mm. in the mining towns. They were yep. working there, but they were living in Perth. So what I discovered in Perth was out of the 20 suburbs that I picked, only four of them were relatively close to the CBD. Can we just get the benchmark so the listeners can understand? So you've got a methodology for yep. – and, and so, it's around identification, right? Part of it yeah. is, but re- selecting suburbs to invest in is both an art and a science. Mm. You need to crunch the numbers, but a lot of it is based on subjectivity by actually visiting yep. the place that you're recommending. That's just stop there for the listeners, though. That is 100% the truth, right? Mm. It's not about you can't become an investor by just sitting there on your laptop no. and looking at the numbers and you've got to get on the streets, drive around, figure out what's driving this suburb. Why is it a good place to live? So continue there, Peter. Yeah. I think it's a really so, important point. <laughs> so. In Perth, around 16 of my 20 suburbs were all on the coast, which are lifestyle suburbs. Mm-hmm. And this is where a lot of the miners were, were living when they were flying in, flying out, especially down in the Mandurah area. So the only suburbs that perform better than Perth, so my benchmark was the suburbs that I pick need to do better than the capital city on average, yep. right? So there was Victoria Park, East Victoria Park, Carlisle and Morley for memory, all right? I only got those four right. But in Melbourne, I got 20 out of 20. In Sydney, I got 20 out of 20. And the theme there was look for undervalued suburbs close to the city or the sea. Yeah. Now, undervalued suburbs are not just those that are cheaper than their neighbour. All right, so if I, because I'm in Sydney, I'll use a Sydney example. Yeah. So I picked Marrickville as one. Yeah. One of the reasons I picked Marrickville is because it's next door to Stanmore. Yep. And Stanmore is much more expensive than Marrickville. Yep. But when you drive through the streets of Marrickville, especially those near Stanmore, you don't know whether you're in Stanmore or at Marrickville. The streetscape's similar, the housing style is similar. But, you know, this type of house, this, say, Federation-style house in Marrickville is much cheaper than this Federation-style house in Stanmore. So it's not just based on median price because the reason why a suburb might be cheaper or have a lower median price is because the place is full of factories and some houses. Well, they're not, you know, they're not similar in nature, so you, yep. you discard those. So you look for undervalued suburbs, then you're comparing apples with apples, similar types of houses in both suburbs. Are you using, are you using the median as the measure? I'm using as the initial measure. Right. And then I use CoreLogic data or, and I went out and visited myself yep. and checked this style of house, and it was generally character and yep. period style mm-hmm. homes because they're the best ones, and, and looked at the median price of the character or period style houses that sold in the prime suburb. Quite a manual operation that is. It, it is. Look, it, yeah, it, it took a lot of work. <laughs> yes. But you know, even though no, well, people bought the book, but nobody paid me for advice. Mm. I was still very careful because I didn't want to lead people astray. Mm. Yep. Now, unfortunately, if you bought in say Mandurah in Western Australia, you know you did lose money. Uh, but unfortunately, also it wasn't. I was not the only property so-called expert decide to buy there yep. because, well, I certainly did not see the GFC coming. But also the measure against what the rest of Perth did, so it did worse than the rest of Perth. Yeah, Perth Mandurah. only did 5%. Some mm. of these suburbs that I mentioned are actually worth less today mm. than they were 10 years ago. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, but if we look at Sydney and Melbourne, full marks, 
Adelaide, 19 out of 20, because the one that I'm, a one I'm not sure of, I just do not have enough data. Yeah. There were not, just not enough yeah. house sales for me. Yes, definitely they went up in value. And people do have to realise that that the volume of data is what makes the data more reliable as well. Yep. Stopping now, I mean, you've, you've said around Sydney, you were, you know, you're beating the Sydney benchmark for oh. houses, right? Then you're, so Hang most on. investors don't even compare what, you know, their performance of their suburb oh, no, they don't. God. to the, the Sydney median, right? And whether it's a good investment or not, that's the first comparison you need to do. So getting 20 out of 20, if Sydney goes up 60%, that means all your suburbs have gone up more than 60%. That's right. Yeah. And then if you then compared, if you, if you could in the book, you went for period homes on good streets, if you then compared what, how they yeah. performed to the suburb, you would find that there's even a better performance there. So you probably outperformed twice. Well, that, that, that's the finer grain detail yes. that I want to go to with the big suburbs. You can't do that in Adelaide because the suburbs aren't, don't have that many people, but in Melbourne and Sydney you can. Mm. Classic example was Brunswick in Melbourne. Yep. So and I'm, this is off the top of my head here for memory. Brunswick itself did uh, 120% growth. Melbourne itself did 90. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's pretty good. Yep. But when you, when you, if you bought in the areas that I told you not to, to buy in, which is on Sydney Road or near the train line, yep. right, in that precinct there, you only did 80%, yeah. Yeah. which is not bad, but worse than the Melbourne average. And it's yep. the opportunity cost. And this is, is why I mean, we do this, we show this exercise or we've got a, a graph for this and we show all of our clients the difference between an overperformer and an underperformer in a given suburb gets bigger and bigger over time and we've tracked individual properties where you can see that they've sold at various times and you've tracked its growth against the medium for the same class of property and you can clearly see they pull away from each other. Mm. And so that's lost money. That's money you've left on the table if you bought a substandard property and I think that is not talked about enough. No. I think people don't understand. Yeah. And in fact, one of my bugbears with a lot of buyers agents is they'll just buy whatever because they have a volume business mm. and I have an absolute deliberate vision that's a bespoke business and will always be so my business because there's not enough good quality property out there for me to have lots and lots and lots and lots of clients. It just isn't. So for anyone to come to me, it is because we want to cherry pick and get them those sorts of properties. But one thing I've always wondered about your your measurement, right? So you've gone in and you've pulled out the individual houses effectively and made sure there's enough of them to actually give you a measure of what the median price 10 years ago was of that type of property in that suburb and what it is now. How have you factored in the cost of renovating and the money that might have been spent on those properties in order to make them? So with CoreLogic, they give you the size of the house. Mm -hmm. So if I can see that over the 10-year period, the houses have grown in size, Mm -hmm. then I know that that's through renovation. So what I try and do is compare, again, real apples for apples, Mm. like Fuji apples with Fuji apples, not Fuji apples with Granny Smith apples. They're both <laughs> apples, but very different apples. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and a classic for me is when I'm looking at medium prices. All right, so in 2008, I'm looking at, at all the properties that were sold uh, in 2008, built whenever, doesn't matter. But in 2018, I'm not interested in what the properties sold for that were built in 2009, 10 or 11 or 12, because they never existed in 2000. Mm. So I'm only looking at what's, what happened to that existing stock. Yeah, yeah. So, and I can get down to the finer grain detail by checking the size of the house in particular, the condition of the house. Yes, you know, I can go through every house and look at the photos on CoreLogic. 
But to be honest, I don't do that. AI mm. will get us there one day. <laughs> but, but you must have to adjust in some way because the you reality do. is that the whole of Sydney incorporates a lot of different types of stock, you know, some other stuff like that, stuff that hasn't been renovated, stuff that's new, stuff that, yeah. you know, doesn't need renovating, et cetera, et cetera. So it is important, I think, to… It is. And, I, and I, I wanted to know how you'd yeah, how well, you'd For the bigger it. suburbs, mm. I can do that. Mm. But some of the smaller suburbs where you may only have 30 or 40 sales in a year, you just have to make an educated decision on, did this type of house in this area mm. do better than whatever the capital city might be in that 10-year period? And generally speaking, if you pick the right suburb in the right street and the right style, you did well. But the most important thing, so if I knew this 10 years ago, I would have changed the title of my book to the top Australian cities and suburbs because Mm -hmm. (laughs) Darwin, I got 100% right. Hobart, 100% right. Brisbane, close to 100% right. But my best suburbs in Adelaide, Brisbane, Perth, Darwin, Canberra came nowhere near my 20th suburb in Sydney or mm. Melbourne. Oh, that's an interesting So, I, I mean, these were the top 20 suburbs, mm. by the way, but still, like, for example. So it comes back to that long-term yeah. growth, so doesn't Adelaide, it? Adelaide, Brisbane, for memory, the top suburbs did about 50% growth, mm. right, mm. which is better than Adelaide or Brisbane itself because they only did about 25% growth in that time. And I think just there's a really good point. So some people in Brisbane will say, you know, have done really well over the last, you know, yeah. 10 years. There is actually suburbs mm. oh, within for sure. Brisbane yep. that have done yeah. 70, 80% in the yep. last 10 years. And there's some suburbs that are great suburbs, but that's because the people who are earning decent money in Brisbane or have got money really want to live in those suburbs. That's right, close and to the city. there's really yeah. desirability in those suburbs and people are willing to take mortgages out that are big mortgages to buy in these suburbs. But it's not until, you know, there's enough people moving to Brisbane until they go to the next suburb. And in terms of gentrification, how does that actually play out over the longer period? And do you need more people to keep on moving to a city? So gentrification is an area where it's a bit low class. There's properties that need work. The first sort of people that move in are the creative class, (laughs) the artists. He's just telling the story of Balmain. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, I went to art college straight out of school. Oh, right. Yes, I am showing my age here in the late eight, in the late eighties, and the place was full of writers and and yeah. actors and but, painters, and 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 they've all been priced out. <laughs> and it's not just Balmain, but this happens mm. all over the world. Because I think I said before, I've written an academic paper on mm. gentrification. So you know, I looked at what's happened in London, what's happened in the US, uh, and and it's the same story over and over. So they move in, all right. Because the rents are cheap and then they slowly start fixing up the places. And then combination of the local government or council coming in and they start fixing up the property, which makes it a better place. And then more people find it appealing. And the main reason is because the white collar workers who generally live in the CBD, they want to live close to work. So even though, you know, Redfern, which is just across the road from where we are, 30 years ago, nobody wanted to live there. Lots of people do now. Why? Because it's so close to the city. Mm -hmm. It was just as close to the city 30 years ago, but the properties didn't appeal to anyone. Well, Surrey Hills had to bloom first. Yeah, that's right. Surrey Hills is another classic. Mm. And look, and I got off the train at Redfern Station to come here and we're in Waterloo. Now, I haven't done the research yet, but if I was to write another book, I'd have a very close look at Waterloo (laughs) because I love all the rundown old-style places. To me- 
this seems ripe. I mean, I would need to walk through many more streets. One right behind here you need to have All a go right. look at. <laughs> but I, this looks great. It is 100% a great yeah. place. Um, the, there's a, two huge things happening just where we are right now in Redfern. You know, you've got the new metro coming in yep. in Sydney. And, you know, for the listeners there. Is it? If, really? If you don't Isn't know. Isn't it like three years behind? <laughs> well, I mean, if, if you, you know, the, the metro is a bit of a game changer for the city. It is. Um, it is taking know, longer than expected. System. If yeah. ever it gets um, finished yeah. and if it if, if it's finished before the technology has already been superseded because apparently it has. But anyway, do you go on, Chris. Well, I mean, <laughs> if you look at places like, you know, London and New York, this, this train, you know, without doubt, I'm extremely confident of what that will mean. You know, if you look at on the website and if you're living in Marrickville, it's 11 minutes from Marrickville to any stop in the city. And then you've got five stops in the city, yep. you know, and you're all up North Sydney and Chatswood. And you think about where we're going to create jobs. It's going to be along those hubs. So if you live in Marrickville, no matter where you get a job, whether it's in Barangaroo or in Central or in North Sydney, you're 12, 13 yep. minutes away. Um, and you haven't got that. That's going to change the game. And in Waterloo in particular, this is kind of one stop and you're in the city. Yeah, um, fantastic. And, uh, the, the big thing that's going to happen here is, you know, they're knocking down all the council flats. So this place is going to be a bit of a work site for about 10 years. But once all that's done, that's when you're going to probably see, you know, the new train yeah. and a lot of new buildings. So I think, I think you're 100% right. Now, you wrote a book about, you know, property versus shares and uh, what's the upshot? Come on, five minutes or less, what would you be? <laughs> oh, I, can, I, can, I can do it in 10 words or Excellent. less. Excellent. Do tell. You have mm. to buy both. Yeah. Okay. Because there are property has its advantages mm. as the shares but they both have their disadvantages. Yeah. So one of the major problems with property is it takes such a long time to sell, and when you do sell it, you have to sell the whole thing. Mm. Whereas with shares- And the you, cost. Yeah, and, and the transaction yeah. cost. Like when yeah. you buy shares, there is no stamp duty. Mm. When you buy property, it's a different story. Mm. Uh, with shares, and you can also buy shares without having to borrow as well, so yeah. it's a lot more Because it's flexible. a much easier entry level. Mm. Yeah. So shares, you, can, you don't have to sell them all. You can sell some of them. Uh, and you can sell them relatively quickly. But for me, I mean, I own both property and shares, but don't ask me about shares because all of my shares are worth less than what I paid for them. Right, so. So you're- and they're all mining shares, interestingly. <laughs> so you're not a tipster. No. What is interesting, though, is that uh, there are a number of businesses around, and we have actually interviewed um, the CEO of one of them, BrickX, which is effectively it's turning properties into shares, isn't it? So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, fractional investment. Mm. I'm a bit of a fan. Okay. Because young people are trying to get into the market. If you want exposure to the residential property market, you need hundreds of thousands of dollars, mm. right? Minimum. Whereas here, you can buy, as the name suggests, a brick. Mm. And one thing I like about Brick X is they're not buying brand new house and lamp mm. packages or off. Yep. These are good quality properties in good quality locations. Yeah. So. So they've Unf got the fundamentals right. Yeah. So mm. unfortunately, there are too many property spruikers who are selling you, excuse the language, crap, just so that they can make a dollar. Yeah. So they don't have your interest at heart. They've only got their own. But from their property selection, I like it. Look, I don't know how the finer stuff works and what sort of mm. you know money the investor gets after all the fees are taken out. Yeah. But their property selection, from what I can see, is pretty good. Yeah. There's actually one of the uh, lecturers that I work with at University of South Australia. He's doing some research on fractional investment because there's BrickX, there's Domacom, yep. and I think some other players are coming into the market as well. well. There's some getting into the super space, superannuation. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's definitely going to be a, a more of a growing trend. We didn't go through the full gentrification story. So, 
you know, you've got <laughs> suburbs where, you know, the artists move in and then what happens? How does and it then, continue to gentrify? And then because the place is so popular, the artists are pushed out mm-hmm. because the rents start to go up too the high. yuppies or, come in. Are they right. still yuppies? No, we, we call them hipsters now. <laughs> hipsters. Yeah. You've got to have a beard like Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then they move in and then they have the money not just to fix up the property a little bit but to actually extend it yep. and renovate it properly. Look, I, I have very personal experience with gentrification because I grew up in a blue-collar area. I live in that same area, but it is gentrified now. Mm. Mm-hmm. It is much, much more appealing to people than it used to be because the area that I live in, which is called Torrensville, which is similar to Erskineville oh, yeah. in Sydney or Yarraville in Melbourne, yep. Yep. full of character period style homes and lots of people have moved in, younger people. So what's happened is, this is another part of gentrification, mm. the old people that used to live there have moved out. Mm-hmm. They've gone to southeast Queensland. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so that leaves a spot for other people. Now, the old people, they didn't have the time, the money, or the skill to fix up their property. Mm-hmm. But the younger people that do, they probably don't have the skill either, but they do have the money or the borrowing capacity. So they get in and fix up those old homes, put on those extensions at the back with the extra living area and bedroom and bathroom, do up the rest of the house with the ducted air conditioning, maybe even a pool, and that flows out through the street other streets, and the whole area just picks up. And does gentrification never stop? Because, you know, a lot of people think, well, you can buy, there's two two probably ways you could go about it. You could buy somewhere that's pre-gentrification and wait. And, you know, it could take a while to kick off. Yeah. You might be a bit early, but you're probably going to get it at a better price because you're going to buy it quite early and no one else is buying there. And so you just got to give it time. So you've got a lower mortgage, you know, lower risk, I guess, in terms of a purchase price, but you might have a, a timing issue. But well, if you buy in a that, suburb, there's risk in that in the sense that you got to make sure you actually pick the right, pro- mm. right well, suburb. Well, that's right. You know, exactly. You could be <laughs> yeah. way too early and you could actually well, go. Well, you could you have know, missed it. Exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, the other idea is that you buy something that's already gentrified in an area knowing that it's going to continue to gentrify over time because of where it's located. But does gentrification stop or yeah. does it keep Gentrification has a start and a finish. Like Paddington is a top-class suburb. Mm. Balmain is a top-class suburb. I'm... I mean, I think I know a little bit more about property than the average person, but I'm not that smart to work out which areas are going to gentrify before they start. But my whole academic paper was on looking for the early indicators of gentrification. Mm. Mm. So it's just started. Now, just because it started doesn't mean that you missed out because gentrification takes 20 to 30 years, Okay. right? So some of the key demographic indicators, there are a higher percentage of childless couples living in the area. So gentrification is basically a a childless process. Mm. There is an increase in professionals moving into the area, in particular female professionals. Mm -hmm. That was very interesting. Because they're the decision makers. Well, but they might be single. Mm. So they have a high disposable income. But also, if you're even in a couple where if the female's also a professional, then the couple has a higher family income or household Mm. income. So, Mm. you know, you can sort of see where that might flow in. And also it has a higher than average number of people who were living at a different address five years ago. So this is all based on census data Mm. because gentrification is driven by people and you can't just have the same people living in there because they're on the same income. You need a new crop of people with a higher income to start getting things going. Mm -hmm. I guess what I was thinking there is that some suburbs just keep on, you know, I guess going up in value over time. Because they so they keep- might keep going up, up in value because they're blue chip suburbs. Like mm. Mossman yeah. is a blue chip suburb. 
right? That's going to continue to grow very steadily. But is Mossman gentrifying still now to more and more old money or more no, and more look, big money? Gentrification is it was first identified in uh, in the UK back in the sixties. It's where it was observed that the gentry were moving into what used to be down and out mm-hmm. areas, right? So I think now you know Paddington is full of the gentry. Mm. So in my opinion, gentrification starts and finishes, takes a long time for it to happen. But when it finishes, then it's just classed as a blue chip suburb. Yeah. Well, you talk to young people now yeah. and you tell them, oh, you know, Paddington used to be down and out. Nobody wanted to live there. They must be joking. <laughs> so yeah, it cost you millions of dollars to so get So you've got a blue chip, but then you've got these premium suburbs. So Paddington's still going through another bit of a growth spurt. It's, it's right. probably well, it's, You would know because you live in Sydney. Yeah, but I mean, going. and a lot of older generation are moving to Paddington you know, because they, you know, they love the older houses and they want to set out of their big backyard into a, kind of a terrace and things like that. So, what's that process they're going through now, where you can, where prices are still going up from, you know, two and a half to three and a half? What's driving these suburbs? It's not gentrification now. No. Just- so, gen- so pri- property prices will go up. It won't be due to gentrification, but it's just a new wave of buyers. That's just scarcity. Yeah, that's right. That's, and, that's all that is. And in some cases, like in Melbourne in particular. Mm. For, for properties that were in top public school zones, it was the foreign investors buying. Yep. So yeah. even though the area may have gentrified, it may have not, right, the reason the property prices were going up is because foreign investors were paying top dollar for the house because then their kid could go to Gwen Waverley High School or Mount Waverley mm. or Kew or somewhere else. They didn't care how much they had to pay. Yeah, I think it's just really interesting because you see the suburbs kind of consistently. It's kind of evolving over time. And, you know, you think, well, how could a property that's worth three, four million still keep going up in value? And, you know, I've been saying that ever since I've been in real estate, but, you know, and it just, it does because there will be always somebody that can afford to buy or wants to buy that particular property in that area. And that's fundamentally what it is. And it's like, if things slow down, it just means growth slows down a bit. There's always going to be somebody who says, oh, well, I didn't think I could afford Paddington last week because it was going crazy and now I can. So I'll go there and compete for it. And then that just gives it a little bit of an mm. edge and a nudge to continue with little modest growth in a period where the rest of the city can be flat. Well, Chris, you lived in London for a while, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. Probably prices are higher in London than they are in Sydney, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, as getting a house in London, you know, you're dreaming. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's the other thing. Like when people say, like there is no doubt Australian property is expensive, but mm. I don't agree it's unaffordable. Because unaffordable, we have to look at the mortgage repayment as a component. Well, we're of, buying them, aren't we? So that's it's right. not unaffordable. That's right. <laughs> you know, somebody's um, buying them. <laughs> so in London and in many places around the world, the typical property is an apartment. Mm. In Australia, 70% of property is detached housing. Yep. So when we say Australian property houses, an Australian property is very different to a London property yep. or a Singapore property or a Hong Kong property. And I've picked those cities because they are global cities, just mm. like Sydney is. Mm. Um, so we need to be careful about, we are, we are not even comparing apples with apples here. Not even with the big apple. <laughs> <laughs> Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Peter, can you give us an example of a property Dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. A Dumbo is uh, somebody that I know who uh, bought a property for development and they bought it because they could see that somebody across the road had developed five on that particular site two years before, 
And without doing any research, they worked out, oh, yeah, this same size block, same dimensions, I can do five. Mm. But they hadn't realised that the council had changed the zoning. So they had bid at auction based on a five-unit site development, but it only turned out to be a two-unit site development. Wow, that's a dumbo. You know, in episode 27, we interviewed architect Tom Wills and he talked about those sorts of things. Just because one side of the street gets to do something doesn't necessarily mean the other side will and things change all the time. And that's a really good example. Ouch, I imagine that was a bit of a loss maker for that developer. And then what do you do? Well, this is a mum and dad developer. True developers understand zoning. Yeah. but First time developer? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, last time developer. (laughs) We haven't um we haven't gone there with developments too much on the podcast, but I know that you've done lots of work in the kind of the development space. What are the, some of the biggest mistakes mum and dad <laughs> or first time developers make when they're thinking about doing a development and they just get to the end of it and go, well, that was a bit of a waste of time. What okay. are the mistakes that lead into that result? So in 10 words or less. Or 10 different ex- examples, yes. <laughs> in 10 words or less, you need to buy the land at the right price mm-hmm. and you need to build right. So buy the land at the right price, that implies you've done all your research and you've worked out it is a two-unit site and not a five-unit site. Mm. You've got enough frontage. You've got the minimum site areas. You're not going to have overlooking or overshadowing issues. You've done all of that and you've paid based on that. And the other one is just because you want to put in Italian tiles from floor to ceiling in the bathroom and you want to put in Miele kitchen appliances doesn't mean anyone's going to pay you extra for that. Right, so you got to build appropriately in a top class area. You put in top class fixtures and fittings. Yep. Uh, in a low class area, even though you might love that, you leave that for your own house. But you build what's going to make you the most profit. The appropriate. And how finishes. does time play into it? Um, oh, time is money in property development. Like develop builders, builders will say we can guarantee in inverted commas a build in nine months. Right. But when you read the fine print, because basically all building contracts are either HIA or MBA contracts, and they're all biased towards their members, right, towards the builders. So if the windows are stuck on the wharf in Melbourne for six weeks, that's not the builder's problem, but you're still paying mortgage for an extra six weeks. Mm. If it rains too much, bad luck. If it's too hot and the workers can't work, Mm -hmm. bad luck. So time is money and timing. So you want to be able to sell your property like if you were developing now in Sydney, I feel sorry for you because mm. you probably did your numbers last year yep. when the market was at its peak and now you're probably selling for less than what you originally thought even though your costs have gone up over that one year period. I tell you what, something it's in I, Melbourne as well. Yeah, and mm. I've seen something that a lot of mum and dads, you know, first time developers do as well is that they factory market growth. <laughs> nah. So they reckon that that's going to be their twenty percent, mar- nah. you know, margin. It's like, oh, you can't do that. You need to work on present costs and present <laughs> Absolutely. value. Absolutely. Any mm. upswing in the in the price, a that's bonus. a bonus. Yeah, that's the cream on the cake. And mm. um, I guess so. You've got buy the land, get your build done, the right build for the right area. Make sure that you're actually going to make a profit. Get it done as quick as you can, but what developer profit should you be allowing oh, for? All right. Okay, yep. yep. If I'm going to invest two million dollars into this project, how much profit do I should I walk away with to make sure that I'm making sure it's a good deal? All right. So what I teach in class is you're looking for a twenty percent gross profit, mm. which is very hard to do. Most uh, developers who do it full time will be happy with a fifteen percent profit. Some developers who are also builders. 
They just want the cash flow. Mm. So the problem is here's a mum and dad developer doing their research and they can see that all these blocks of land sold for a million dollars, right? But all those blocks of land that sold for a million dollars, they all sold to developers. Mm. They're not interested in the profit margin. Mm. They just need to keep the people in the office busy and all their tradies busy. But the first time mum and dad developer thinks, oh, they paid a million dollars for that land. That means this land over here is also worth a million. No, because the other thing is the builder is going to build for less than what you are because you have to pay the builder to build. Like the builder might charge you $1,500 a square metre to build. But they're not, it's not costing them $1,500. No, they're paying themselves. They're paying their own development company. Mm. So, you know, they're buying jobs. They're buying workers and, you know, they buy sites, which buys jobs. And it's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Also, tradies are hard to come by. So they want to keep their their tradies close, you know, and and in work. And so there's there's a lot involved in why a builder might pay more for a site or a developer might pay more for a site if they've got a building company as well. I've actually written a series of articles called Property Development 101. Yeah. If people Google my name and Property Development 101, they'll see it's like the 10 steps of successful small-scale property development. We'll, we'll definitely put that in the yeah. show links. I guess the only other thing that I would kind of flag is just making sure you take care of all the costs. Oh, you know, if like, you miss one little item like holding costs or oh, capital gains yeah. tax. People think, oh, this is what the land cost me. That's what it's going to cost to build. That's the total cost of the project. Yeah. It's not. Oh, it's yeah. Not. And one of those articles – talks about the feasibility study, especially a scenario analysis. Mm. What's the best that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? What's probably going to happen? Yeah. Along with those articles, I've just finished a video series because I'm actually doing a small-scale development myself. So there's a video series. So when I wrote about the tax component of it, there's a video with the accountant answering questions about Mm. property development and tax or the town planner or the real estate agents that were involved, or the oh, property what a manager. Great resource. We'll definitely get the link. There's for that. something for free. Because thank you I was very thinking, much. What can I give away for free? There you I go. Don't, I don't have any books left. So that was but there. You go. <laughs> fantastic. They can go to that. And that was going to be my next question, which is how can people find out more about you? Okay, so look, I, I'm just a lecturer, but who also invests in property. So I don't, I don't run a property business. Mm. Um, but if people are interested in finding out about something in particular in property, if they Google my name on whatever topic they're looking for, I've probably written an article on it because I've written lots of articles for news.com and realestate.com. Mm. If they're interested in doing courses, mm. TAFE is running a weekend workshop next month in October on the fundamentals of property investment. Right. In SA? In SA. Yep. Yep, yep. So it's, we've done it for the on the weekends to try and attract interstate investors because generally we run weeknight classes. Yep, yep. And in November... I'm doing a uh, property development workshop. Uh, but if people go to the TAFSA website yep. and just put in property in the search field, they'll they'll find the dates. I mean, I couldn't recommend one of those courses enough, to be honest. You're a good man, Chris. Um, you know, I, I, very early on, I did one of those and it's very and sound advice. And look at you now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate you uh, coming in. Pleasure. Anytime, Chris. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you, Veronica. We want to make you a better elephant rider. This week's elephant rider training is... All around land content. So probably one of my number one points about when we're talking about what makes a good property investment is when you're buying something, how much is the land worth of the purchase price? So if you're buying something for a million dollars, if you figured out what the land value of that property was and it was say a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars that means you're paying eight hundred or nine hundred thousand dollars for the building and a hundred thousand dollars for the land 
Now, what goes up in value isn't the building, it's the actual land, because that's what over time is actually keeps its value, whereas the building like a car depreciates. So when you're buying property, what you're looking to do is ideally get something with 70 or 80% of the value in the land and only 20 or 30% of the value in the building. So when you do it buying something for a million dollars, maybe the land's worth 700 or 800,000 if you knocked the building down. Now, the big thing in houses, it's pretty easy to figure out. You can go and figure out what a derelict house in the area is probably worth or has sold it recently. And that gives you a pretty good understanding of what the land value could be if it's comparable. But with units and apartments, it starts to get much more difficult. But that's why it's so important that when you buy a unit block, you buy in small blocks of maybe six, eight or 10 apartments, because that means you're getting much more land than if you're buying in a block of say 200 or 50 or 100 apartments. So for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp, it's all about understanding the land content of what you buy, because really that's what goes up in value long-term. Tune in next week when we interview another buyer's agent, Shelley Horton. Shelley's background is in valuation and also in lender's mortgage insurance. So she is going to shed a lot of inside information in terms of how she looks at the property market through those lenses. And it is very, very worthwhile understanding. The other thing that she talks about is the Blue Mountains market. We haven't talked about that before. Shelley's an expert in that area. So tune in when we talk about a tree change. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.